Are we going to uh, look together at uh, Psalm 77? I don't know <clears throat> how familiar you are with the psalm. I, I probably would guess that it's not one of your most familiar psalms. There are psalms which we could describe as being classic psalms. You know, if we were to look, say, at something like Psalm 23, we, we would all know my, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's, it's one of those that is sort of embedded in our minds. And, uh, you know, something like Psalm 46, you know, the Lord is my refuge and strength. And, you know, Psalm 48 and then Psalm 73. I mean, some of these are great, great Psalms that uh, seem to um, resonate in the, the heart and soul of uh, Christians. They remember these things you know in times when uh, they're going through trials and difficulties and uh, want to remember what God is and who God is and these things come back to their minds because it's almost as if it's been embedded in them the studying the scriptures and realizing uh, what God himself has done but some psalms not so familiar to us and uh, it doesn't mean to say that they lack importance what it means to say is that sometimes they don't seem as important as other psalms. And yet, for all of that, all psalms have a message for us. And uh, we can glean and study these things and realize, can't we, uh, more and more about the experiences of uh, God's people, his ancient people, especially when you read of the experiences that they go through. And in that sense, you, you, you find here that uh, the writer... Asaf, he is uh, mentioning uh, his state and his condition, the state and condition of his soul at this particular time. He was certainly in a, in a distressed state, in a state of anxiety, a state of uh, uh, all kinds of problems happening in his mind, in his thoughts and uh, in his own heart at that particular time. And how he grapples with these difficulties and yet... For all of that, he comes out on the other side and uh, he is a man who knows something more and something greater about God. And it is through those dark periods when we go through them and uh, we walk with God through those situations and we come out on the other side that our souls grow and we develop as Christians. We have greater trust and faith in God and a greater hope and anticipation of God's intervention in events in our lives. And here you get this uh, writer and he is writing this particular psalm to teach and to tell us about his own experience. But not only that, to, to really give to us the sort of um, means whereby we can learn how to come out of dark periods and dark and stressful times and how that we can come out in such a way that we will know more and more of God and of his presence. The psalm, in actual fact, if you were to subdivide the psalm, it, it actually subdivides itself almost perfectly. There's 20 verses in it. And uh, it can be divided either verses 1 to 9 and then 11 to 20 or 1 to 10 and 11 to 20. But um, it doesn't really matter which way you look at it, because verse 10 is the pivotal 
day, the pivotal verse in this particular psalm, it's uh, the changing point. Uh, there's some interesting things about the fact that it was changed. If you can think of a seesaw for a moment, it's the, it's the time when, uh, you know, when he was down on one end and then suddenly, you know, as he considers all things, you know, he's in this fulcrum and uh, it clicks over, it goes over the other side and he's lifted up and elevated and he realizes something more about God. And it's what we need to see and to understand is how he achieved that and how he got to that in the end. In the opening verses, what you find is that uh, he uses uh, the you know, terms concerning himself. I, I, I is all the way through it. And then uh, after uh, verse 10, 11, you get you, you, you when he's speaking to God. It's almost as if uh, the direction of his thoughts and his thinking was suddenly and dramatically altered and changed. And uh, as he sees a new perspective, then uh, the state of his soul and the condition of his heart is suddenly and dramatically changed. And uh, instead of him being preoccupied with himself and overcome by self-pity and, uh, you know, looking at himself and feeling sorry for himself, you know, that his condition is not like any other condition that other men have gone through. Well, that's never the case. And so what you find is that as he's pondering these things and as he's looking at himself and uh, all of a sudden he's going to change and his situation is going to change. So when you look at the verses, you know, and you need to have a look at um, uh, the verses one to nine, for example, because it is a description, an insight really into the state and condition of his soul. And so one of the things that you find is that uh, when he is there, the first thing that he starts with, of course, he tells us that he cries to the Lord. And that's uh, the starting point, uh, whether it was in the past or whether it was in the present. It doesn't really tell us in one sense, but the one thing was sure that this was an experience and this is what he did. He cried to the Lord. There was a cry within his soul. He wanted God to hear his prayer. He wanted God to intervene in his situation. And one of the things is that you know, the change in his heart and soul is created by the sense of him crying unto God and God responding to that situation and him suddenly understanding more about God. And uh, it's a lesson really for each and every one of us to learn, isn't it? Uh, that uh, not only do we go through valleys, dark valleys and uh, the shadow of death and all these different things that are mentioned, but, you know, on the other side, there is light. There is liberty for us in understanding how God is actually dealing with us. Look how bad the state and his condition is. He says, when there in verse three, isn't it? When I remember God, I mourn. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. You know, this is, how many people really do you know? And you might have experienced yourself through anxiety and through trials and testings, you know, that you've lost your sleep in the night. You know, you go through sleepless nights and anxious times, and it's not something new. You know, this man knew it in himself. He knew what it was to be awake in the middle of the night, to be anxious, to be overcome with a sense of being deflated in himself. He didn't know what to do. The situation seemed very, very difficult at that particular time. But yet, for all of that, you could see there in verse 6, for example, he reminds us that this was never always his state and never always his condition. 
He says, let me remember my song in the night. It's not remembering then at that particular time, but he's remembering and reflecting back to times when he would have known such blessing in his own soul, that he would remember times of blessing when he could have, even in the middle of the night, been found praising God. He would have had songs to God. But that wasn't his state and his condition at this time. And instead of wallowing in self-pity at this particular time, it's almost as if he takes himself in hand. And here he comes to this place where he wants to pose certain questions to answer certain questions or at least uh, raise the question or raise the issues before himself. In actual fact, if you go to um, different versions of the Bible, some say there's five questions, some say there's six questions. It doesn't really matter. There's a number of questions, okay? And there in verses seven to nine, he asks and he poses questions to himself. He's asking the question, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased and his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So you can see this man, he is struggling with this. He is struggling with the situation. You know, this is his dilemma. He's looking at the situation which he finds himself. And now he's posing questions and questioning, as it were, God himself. But, you know, when you read these questions, what sort of response do you find being raised in your own heart and mind? You know, the immediate response, you know, when I started reading these, you know, and, I, and I'm sure that this must have been in his own mind at that particular time. You know, when he is saying, will, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? What's the answer to that? No, never. You know, or has his steadfast love forever ceased and his promises at an end for all time? No, they're not. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No, he can't. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No, he hasn't. You know, the answer to all the questions here is a resounding no. You know, he's questioning and challenging himself in his views and his thoughts about God. And he's thinking about God and he's asking these questions. And it's almost as if he's looking and thinking to himself, are these things true of God? Because on the surface of things at this moment of time, this is how it looks. You know, I'm going through these difficulties. I'm going through these problems. You know, where is God in my situation at this particular moment in time? And so as he struggles with these questions, you know, he's asked, he starts to ask the question, you know, is God like this? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Can God forget to be gracious? Is that a possibility? Well, I can tell you this is an impossibility because God is always gracious. So what you find is that this man is asking these questions and he is unfolding to us the state and the condition of his heart and the queries and the questions that are going through his heart and mind at that particular time. But then the crux comes, doesn't it, in verse 10, you see, because this is where the whole of the psalm changes. The whole direction of his thinking, his thoughts suddenly are altered. He said, then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the most high it's interesting actually a fact that if you looked at um, some older versions 
what you find is I've got um, the New King James Version next to me in verse 10. It says, and I said, this is my anguish or this is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Here I am. This is my anxiety. This is my dilemma. This is this is my problem. But the thing that I'm going to do, he says, is that I am going to remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. And it's at this particular point that in his own mind, in his own thoughts, a change suddenly starts to take place. And the introduction there, in actually for one commentator, um, Derek Kidner, he says like this, that the old commentators uh, have helped us out in many ways, as I write to you in um, uh, the New King James Version. And he said, uh, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Those words, but I will remember, are not actually there, it's in italics, so it's not actually in the text, but what they've done is they've introduced this into the text by way of interpretation for people like you and I to be able to understand what's coming afterwards because there's a parallel here made with the following verses where it says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Suddenly there is, or I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. You see, here's the sudden change. How he was going to correct the way in which he was thinking at that moment of time. He was looking, as it were, on his state and his condition at that moment of time. He was looking down and he was looking around, but he wasn't looking up. And the problem is that when we do that, then we enter into all kinds of difficulties and problems. And the whole point is that the psalm is pointing us in the direction of where we should be looking. And where we should be looking is that we should be looking into God. That God should be the center of all our thoughts as we consider our state and our condition. We should remember such verses, isn't it? Like, you know, all things work together for good to them that love God. So God becomes the center of all activity that's taking place in our lives. And here does this man, what does he do? He wants to remember what God has done in history, what God has done historically in the lives of the Israelites, the lives of the Jews. He is going to remember now God's direct interventions in the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. And what you find when you read these verses is that you get this picture that is presented to us, the history of God's people. And he takes, basically, he takes two aspects of that particular events that took place in the life and history of the Jews. And that is, he remembers, first of all, the parting of the sea and the Red Sea, a redemption came. Deliverance was afforded to the people of God. They were coming out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. They're stuck there. The armies of Pharaoh are pursuing them. And here they are. They're stuck. Where can they go? There's nowhere to go. They can't turn to the left or to the right. And so what does God do? He comes and he opens up the Red Sea before them. And they are able to go through and dry ground. And then he remembers then. The events of Mount Sinai. When you remember the situation there, the cloud comes down. The, the, the mountain itself is sealed off. The people are warned not to go on to the mountain. If they go on, they die. There were thunders and there were lightnings. It was such a dramatic event that were taking place. God was there. God was there at the very heart of these people. Here was the God 
we'd entered into and was about to, as it were, expand what God expected of these particular people. He was going to make them a nation. He was going to make them a people. They were who? They were his covenant people. They were a people into whom he had entered into a relationship with them. He had become their God. He had condescended to enter into a wonderful, unique covenant with Abraham, their father, which was expanded here to show that he was expanding it to make them into a nation and into a people. It was nothing unusual. God had predetermined to do this. But here is a writer. He is here looking at these particular things. And he is saying, I'm remembering what God has done. Who is God to us? God is the God of redemption. God is the covenant-keeping God. God is the God who has sworn, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, I am the God of Israel. Greater than all the gods of the nations. No God had been like this God who had delivered his people from bondage and captivity. Here was the God of redemption. Here was the God of salvation. Here was the God of the covenant. This was their God. How could they be concerned with the situation which they found themselves at that moment of time. You see, what he is doing is this, that he is laying the foundation for every confidence that he should have in God. And the way in which he does it is he reflects back. He goes back in history. He goes back in the annals of time. He wants to see and to understand something more of what God has done. So God becomes the center of his thoughts, of his considerations at this particular point in time. And suddenly his mind is elevated from the situation that he found himself in around and about him at that moment of time to view and to look at God. And you see, it's at this particular time that he has forgotten all about himself. And this is why in the verses that follow, he says, I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. You see, what he is doing is this, that he is reflecting and considering the very nature and character of God. Those questions that are posed to us in verses seven to eight, uh, seven to nine rather, what you find there is that there was a negative to all of them. Why? Because he was reflecting upon the nature and character of God, which is unchangeable. He's not fickle and changing like men. He's not fickle and changing like the God of the heathens. But he is a God who is infinitely supreme in every way, but unchangeable in his character. This is why it says there, doesn't it, uh, about God, it says in verse 13, your way, O God, is holy, or your way is in the sanctuary, but it's translated for us holy to give us the impression and the idea that it is all to do with the holiness of God. This infinitely holy God, whose character never changes, who never alternates in his ways in which he deals with his people, and when he has bound himself with covenant with these people, it is an unchangeable covenant. And so here he could have this absolute confidence. He could believe that this God who dealt with the people down through the ages is going to deal with him graciously and with the nation graciously at that particular time. 
What a state and what a condition. Here is the very foundation. Here is the very heart of his confidence, his trust. He is looking now, believing in faith, trusting in God. He is one who is there at this moment of time. The interesting thing is, of course, that when you read through the, the latter verses here, isn't it, when it tells us and it gives us this description, doesn't it? You know, the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Oh, awesome. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. Undiscernible, isn't it? God was with them in every situation. And yet they couldn't discern the footprints of God. You know, there, there wasn't evidence in that sense, was there? Physical evidence. But God was with them. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. There is some element of mystery and secret associated with the ways in which God deals with us. As John Fravel said, he, you know, it is the mystery of providence, isn't it? The way in which God deals with us. There is profound mystery attached to it. But, you know, for you and I, living in the New Testament age, of course, we live in a better situation, as Paul says in Corinthians, isn't it? You know, that, uh, yes, they had great benefits in the Old Testament, but not compared with the benefits that we have in the New Testament. We have greater light, we have greater things to reflect upon. You know, if you and I were to be living like these Jews and only think of what God did then, we would be fundamentally, you know, misguided in our thoughts. We can see what God has done with his ancient people. But it's nowhere near compared with what he's done for you and I. If we think that the redemptive history of Israel was something that was amazing, and this man gleaned so many good thoughts from it and was encouraged and strengthened in himself as he reflected upon the past, it gave him cause for hope for the future. How much more us? In this New Testament era, in the New Testament dispensation, when God has been dealing with us, you know, when we reflect back, what do we reflect back upon? God is the God of redemption. He was the God of redemption in the Old Testament. But we can say, like this, more so in the New Testament, when we see what real redemption was all about, the redemption of our souls, that salvation has come to us through what? Through what God has done in Christ. You know, that he has done wonderful things for us. And what has he given to us to encourage us? And where should we be looking? Should we be looking unto God, you know, and looking back at history and what God has done? And, of course, we always look back, don't we, to that place called Calvary. We look back. Why? Why do we look back to Calvary all the time? Well, we look back to Calvary because, you know, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, isn't it, you know, that God has demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says, do you want a demonstration of how much God loves you and how much God is concerned for you? Well, look at Calvary. Ponder for a minute the God of redemption, what he's achieved for us through Christ. He has demonstrated his love for us, this love which is an unchanging love. He has demonstrated to us in such a marvelous way. 
We read only that God did not spare his only son or his own son, but delivered him up for us all. This God who is unsparing in his son, this God who demonstrates his love for us, this God who is the God of redemption is the same God that was there in the Old Testament. But we see him in a greater light. We see this universal application of the gospel to all the world, reaching out to nations, reaching out to people's ears. This God was entered into a covenant relationship with us. And isn't it at the communion, when we come to the communion table, it was a thought of mine, I've got to do the communion on Sunday. So it was a thought of mine that I could have dealt with this then. But I'm going to deal with it now anyway, in a part, in just passing. And just to say like this, that, you know, when we think of communion, what does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Why, why are we doing it? Well, we are remembering the great, the great event of what Jesus has done for us. You know, you cannot bypass Calvary. You cannot bypass his death. You cannot bypass his resurrection. Why? Because here is the act of redemption. We are redeemed, says Peter, doesn't he? Not with corruptible things as of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Here he is. Behold the lamb of God, says John. Here he has come. Here is that lamb that God said to Abraham, I will provide a lamb. And here he is. The redemptive lamb, Christ himself, God's lamb, dealing with us. And so we have to look back and to see that when we are going through trials and difficulties and problems and that, isn't it? How do we overcome them? Well, if we grovel in our situation, we bemoan the fact that, oh, nobody knows any sorrow like my sorrow. Forget it. That is never true. We can all go through difficult times. But the way out of it is the most important thing. What lesson do we learn? How do we overcome that situation? By faith, we look at these particular things and we remind ourselves. We come back to this time and time and time again that God loves me. God sent his son to die for me. God has demonstrated his love to me. God selected me and chose me out of the world, brought me into his family, made me a child of God. All of these things are true of me. And all the promises of God, what are they? They're yes and amen. They're sure and certain in Christ. All of his promises. Us, we should have absolute confidence in God in every situation which we find ourselves in the most distressing times. It's only in that darkness we can only see a glimmer of light when we look back and understand what God has done. He is the God of redemption. And when Paul is saying he has demonstrated his love to us, he also says to the church in Galatia, doesn't he, that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, at the end of Romans chapter 8, isn't it? What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing, he says. He goes on, he gives a whole catalogue of things. He mentions the love of Christ to us. Christ loves the church and he gave himself for it. Can he cease to love you? Can he forget all about you? Have we gone to such extremes to bring us into his family? 
Would he, having brought us into his family, forget all about us? Of course not. It's like the questions this man posed. It's an impossibility. God is who he is. He is God. And he is the unchangeable God. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God of redemption and of salvation. He does not change. And his affection towards us does not alter. It never grows cold towards us. He loves us with an everlasting love. So you see it here. But let me come to a quick conclusion. And that is to say that redemption, and this is why I was going to speak on it on Sunday, maybe, but anyway, that's another thing. But the whole point is this, that redemption is something that has to be achieved by a member of the family. In the Old Testament, you, you had a situation for anybody to redeem anything. They had to be a member of the family. You couldn't just be Joe Bloggs down the road. You couldn't just say, oh, you know, can you come up and redeem this for me? He had to be a member of the family. Go back to the book of Ruth, isn't it? When you look in the book of Ruth, Boaz had to wait. There was somebody before him who could have redeemed the situation at that particular time, but chose not to. And so Boaz did the act of redemption. And he re rebought what Naomi had lost and what Ruth was to inherit. And he rebought that and didn't rebuying that. He bought his love. He bought Ruth, didn't he? You see, it was, it, it was a family thing. It was interrelated in the relationship they had. And so when we look at Jesus, what do we see? We see Christ coming into the world. And in order for him to become our brother, he had to become a man. And by becoming a man, of course, he could redeem. He became part and parcel of humankind. He bound himself to us by that nature that he has now taken into heaven and into glory. Remember when he was speaking to his disciples, he's talking about his ascending and he said, I ascend to my father and you a father, to my God and to you a God. He was to remind them, look, this is the bond that I have with you. You know, I no longer call you friends, he says, but I call you brothers. You know, it's such a warmth and a depth and a real reality of the relationship that he has with them. These are not simply human beings uh, which have no real connection with him, but, but he is so bound to them. Remember when you start reading in John chapter 13, you know, that Jesus loved them and he loved them to the end. There's lots of queries about what that actually means to the end. But the whole point is this, that he loves us and he loved his disciples and he loved them right to the very end. So when we are going through dark and trying times, what should we do? If we dwell upon the problems and the difficulties that we are confronted with, We'll never overcome them. 
But when we pray and when we seek God and when we think of God and remind ourselves of who God is and we think of the attributes and the characteristics of God and we remember his faithfulness, we remember his love, we remember his compassion, we remember his mercy. And the question is, can he forget us? Of course not. He has loved us from eternity. He planned and purposed to bring us to himself. Why? Because he wants to spend an eternity with us. Hard to believe, isn't it? Nevertheless, it's true. The wonder of redemption and of salvation. If this man could remember the redemptive act of God in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, Remember the act of God coming to meet with his people at Mount Sinai. How much more assurance do we have when we look at Calvary and we remind ourselves that God in Christ has reconciled us to himself through Jesus' death at Calvary? Then how can we ever doubt that God will not be with us? Even when we're going through difficult and trying times, or that we don't look or ponder and be overcome and overwhelmed with self-pity and doubts. But as we look back at what God has done, we can look forward in hope and in anticipation that God is going to remain and continue with us forever.